Thanks, Jimmy. Can you guys hear me? Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Good. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, today is Good Friday. Uh, when Christians all around the world gather to remember and indeed celebrate the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Jimmy was saying, it's, it's a weird thing to, to come together and celebrate the death of someone. When we, when we think of death, when we remember someone who has died, that's a sad thing. It should be a sad thing, right? And so when we look at Jesus on the cross, the thing that, that struck, strikes me when when I think of someone who's died, is that silence that flows over you, right? What can you say to that? How do we respond? When we look to Jesus on the cross, when we see those tears rolling down his head, how, do, how can we possibly respond to that? What, what, are there words to express how we feel in that? But of course, we must say something, right? Something, we must speak. Something must be said. Apart from all the discounted chocolate, there must be a reason while we call this day good. Now keep your Bibles open. I'll be flicking around in the chapter a bit. Um, we've just heard read the account of Jesus' death written by uh, who we believe to be the Apostle John, brother of James, uh, one of the sons, sons of Zebedee who writes for us, uh, John 19, verse 1 to 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Now this looks at first kind of like a joke, right? Like they're just mucking around. But this was actually Roman procedure. The soldiers had to do this. They had to drag whoever they were arresting out into the public, have him humiliated. So this is what they did to Jesus. And those beatings had different meaning. Depending on the severity of the crime they had, like the, the harsher the crime, the more they'd beat them or the more fantastic tools they'd use to beat them with. The Romans really had nothing else to do but just design crazy weapons. That whip on that thing over there, if you can see it, it's, I don't know, you can check it out later. It's just something they created just to cause pain for someone. How crazy is that? So this is what they had to do. So they dressed Jesus up as a king in a crown and a purple robe and they tormented him. Now Pilate brings Jesus out and shows him to the Jews. And jumping to verse 6, he says, As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Now, you could probably explain that fear of Pilate in a few different ways. So, the Romans at this time hated riots. If you're trying to rule a whole world at one, at one time, the last thing you want to do is a bunch of people in one part making some noise, right? So, Pilate is pretty much fearing his own life here. You could say that. That he's fearing his position might be compromised by this riot. But it's it's probably more likely that this fear is not of Rome necessarily, but the fear of Jesus. You see, the Romans at this time were very superstitious people. Their religions revolved around this pantheon of gods who, if you've looked at Roman mythology at all, it's full of these uh, characters coming down onto earth, these, these demigods, 
and presenting themselves to people. And so Pilate, being afraid, verse 9 tells us, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Now you can just hear Pilate's knees knocking together as he says that. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now, we, we assume that he's referring to the Jews here, being guilty of the greatest sin, but what an answer that is. Now, after we read Pilate's, read what we said here, Pilate's really keen to get Jesus free, but the riot continues. The Jews even threaten, threaten Pilate and say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. And so the chief priests at this point are swearing their allegiance to Caesar just so that Jesus could be crucified. And in this light, Pilate can do nothing else. And so we read in verse 18, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross in between two other people. Verse 28 tells us, Later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Friends, behold, the Lamb of God is slain. Jesus dies. It is finished. Now, friends, we could spend the rest of the time considering how wretched it truly was to die on a Roman cross. The insane brutality of it. The word excruciating, that's where we get the word excruciating from. How intense that pain must be that a word had to be created just to explain how that felt. Isaiah says in 52 verse 14, just as there were many who appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. He was so injured, he didn't even look human anymore. We could spend the hours digging into what that must have felt like, but we won't. Partially because I'm terrible with blood and I'll probably just faint right here in front of you. But also because that's not the point. Mainly because that's not the point. The point is this, that abounding in love for us God has shown us mercy through His Son. Amen? Now, friends, for us to really understand, us to really conceive this great mercy and goodness of our Savior in suffering death for all, it's our responsibility, friends, to consider the reason for all of it, the principal cause. And this takes us back all the way to the Garden of Eden when our father Abraham had broken God's commandments, disobeyed God, dishonored God, um, and eating that fruit. And in eating that, in disobeying God, he purchased for himself and for everyone that came after him the just judgment of God, just wrath of God. In giving, in Genesis chapter 2, God gives um, authority to Adam in looking after all things. And he says, But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, this was God's promise. Adam ate it, 
and he died. That, that meaning that he became a mortal. And he lost the favor of God, was cast out of Eden, had an, and had no longer been a citizen of heaven, but became a slave to evil. And this was not only true of Adam, but of everyone that came after him. And of course, God sees all this, right? This is what Jesus refers to when he says, the lost sheep who've wandered from their shepherd in Luke 15. And Paul refers to this in Romans 5, when he explains that because of Adam, death reigned in everyone on earth. And so now neither Adam or anyone who came after him had any right to the kingdom of God, but instead hated God and became fools destined for God's judgment. Now this wouldn't be so bad if we had some way we could recover ourselves, right? Gain forgiveness at God's hands, but there was no way he could do nothing to please God. Paul quoting David uh, in Romans 3.12, he says, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so what was he to do? How could he work out his salvation? Should he try and please God with burnt offerings like the law commanded, like the law demanded? The blood of calves and goats and lambs and whatever animal it was that they were killing. These things didn't stand a chance against the wrath of God. Hebrews 10 tells us, verses 1 to 4, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so what else is there to do? The, the sacrifices didn't work? How about the law? The commandments? Surely if mankind could just, could just fulfill the commands, then we could escape God's judgment against us. Jesus himself tells us, when someone asks him about the commands, he says, do this and you will live. Jesus himself, he says, fulfill these commandments. Keep yourself upright, perfectly according to my will, and you will live. Here we have a promise of God. God's promise promises us this life with a condition, that we fulfill his commandments, that we keep and observe the law. But even that, we had no power to do. In our weakness, we can't even walk upright before God for an hour, let alone a day or a lifetime, right? I mean, that's like saying to me, to swim to Tasmania, and then I'll be saved. If you've seen me swim, you know there's no chance I'm doing that, and it's Tasmania. Now, the words of King David stand true here. No one does good, not even one. And so the law becomes useless to us. That's not to say that it's a bad thing, that the law is a bad thing. It's just that humans have been so corrupted that no one can observe it perfectly. And so do you think Adam had any hope in being saved by the law? Not a chance. But the more he looked on the law, the more he saw his own wickedness, like through the clearest glass. He saw himself wretched and miserable and without hope. But friends, oh, the abundant riches of God's great mercy. Amen? The unspeakable goodness of his heavenly wisdom. 
when all hope of righteousness was past on our part, we had nothing in ourselves to save us from the burning wrath of God himself. When we were still unable to pick ourselves up, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, down from heaven to be wounded for our sake. To be counted among the wicked, as prophet Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 5, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and his wounds, and by his wounds we are healed. Paul says also in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Peter writes too in 1 Peter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now to this list, we could, uh, we could add tons of things, right? Thousands of verses to this list. Now then, as I said in the beginning, let's consider, ponder the cause of Jesus' death, that we would be moved to glorify him, him even more. And to put that into a few words, friends, the only thing we contributed to the saving and redeeming death of our Savior was the transgression and the sin that made it necessary. This is why Jesus died, because of our sin. Right from, from the beginning, when Gabriel said to Mary and Joseph, what did he say in Matthew one twenty one? She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name of Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And even John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he points to him and said what? In John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was sin, brothers and sisters, even our sin, that caused Christ, the only Son of God, to be crucified in the flesh and to suffer the most vile and slanderous death, death on a Roman cross. Friends, if only we kept ourselves free of sin, if only we kept upright in the commandments, if only we didn't dishonor God right from the beginning, then God, who is immortal and invisible, wouldn't have to come down on earth as a servant. Then God, being immortal in heaven, wouldn't have to be mortal on earth. The true bed of life himself wouldn't have to hunger. The water of life wouldn't have to thirst. And life itself in the flesh wouldn't have to suffer death. But to these and more, friends, he endured for our sins. No fault of his own, but for our great sins. So great that God can only be pleased in him and no other. Can anyone consider this and not tremble? Can you hear it without any sorrow in you? Did Christ die on the cross? And will you show no compassion towards him? We read that while Christ was hang, uh, hanging on the cross and giving up his spirit, scripture tells us that the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, that the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs opened up, and the, the dead bodies came to life. And yet, when we remember how cruelly he was treated for us, can our hearts be harder than stones, friends? 
Do we have less compassion than dead bodies that they raised to life for Jesus? Set your minds to Jesus on the cross now. Think that you see his body on the cross. You can use these images around you. His head crowned with thorns, his hands and feet pierced with nails, his heart opened with a spear, his flesh torn with whips. Think that you hear him crying in agony to his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you behold this sight without tears, friends? Considering that he suffered all of this, not of his own fault, but because of our great, the greatness of our sin. Oh, that mankind could put the everlasting God through such pain. Oh, that we should be the reason he died, the only cause of his condemnation. At this thought, friends, we have every reason to weep. And so, brothers and sisters, let this image of Christ crucified be always printed on our hearts. Let it, one, stir up hatred to sin, and two, provoke our minds to the earnest love of God. Is sin such a bad thing, do you think? Do you reckon God hates sin? Seeing that because of it, he condemned the whole world to condemnation that could only be satisfied by his only son? Has God not shown us how much he hates sin when he flooded the world and saved only eight people? When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? When 70,000 people died because of David's sin in, Sam in 2 Samuel? When he suffered Judas to hang himself for betraying Jesus? You can find a thousand examples of how much God hates sin, but why would we need to? This one example we have now is of more force and should move us even more, Christ being the Son of God, the perfect God himself, who never committed sin, was compelled to come down and to give his body to be bruised and broken for our sins. Friends, this is the greatest token of God's hatred towards sin, that he would be satisfied by nothing else but by the blood of Jesus. Friends, sin has entered the world and there's no escaping it. There's no one on earth that can escape it. And although Jesus came to deliver us from sin, this doesn't mean that Christians are incapable of sinning, but it means that our sin won't be counted against us. As, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's because Jesus has taken upon himself the wages of our sin in suffering death so that believing in him, we might have eternal life. Shouldn't this stir up inside of us an intense hatred for sin? That because of it, God came from heaven and suffered death. If only we considered this in our daily lives, if only if we kept this in our hearts, we'd be so humbled by it, right? It would change the way we live. We wouldn't be running around all the time trying to fulfill our fleshly desires every way possible. And that's why Hebrews 6 tells us that for Christians who have been saved by God to continue to willfully sin is like crucifying Christ again. If we considered this deeply in our hearts, sin wouldn't reign in our lives the way it does. To the grief of Jesus Christ who sits in heaven now. Let's hold this message, this image of Christ crucified in our hearts, driving us to hate sin, and also to drive us to love God. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, if God has shown us that much love, how can we respond with anything but love back to him? I mean, he gave us his own son from heaven, his own son, not an angel nor any other creature, but his own son. And to us, unworthy us, who deserve to be ripped out of the Garden of Eden, who deserve to be in God's judgment, who don't deserve a place in God's kingdom. And yet he gave us his only son, that through his blood shed on the cross we might be clean and made righteous before God again. Who can do anything but marvel at this, that God should show such love to his enemies? Friends, so let's marvel at it, seeing in it God's goodness and mercy to mankind that no one could ever be able to explain. No theologian, no priest, no philosopher could ever be able to understand. Paul tells us again in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if, if we deserved any of it, then we wouldn't, have to, we wouldn't have to marvel at it so much. And since we don't deserve any of it, let's not pretend that we, we do deserve some, some kind of it, but let's fall on our faces before him and cry with King David, saying, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. And seeing that God loved you so much, turn your heart to love him back with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And pray that for his own sake, we wouldn't forget the great benefit of our salvation in Jesus, but that we would be always thankful for it, hating all kinds of wickedness and applying our minds wholly to serving God in love and holiness. Now, brothers and sisters, we've looked at how Jesus' death, horrible and shameful as it was, brought us salvation and redemption and became for us a medicine for the wounds of our soul. What use is medicine if it's not applied to the wounds, right? I mean, what use is all this information that we've just read, or we've just heard, if it's not applied to our hearts? And the way we do this is through faith, and not in any inconstant or wavering faith, but sure, steadfast, and grounded faith. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only Son, and why? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is the way we can have eternal, eternal life, by faith. Romans 10 tells us, For it is with your heart that you believe, and you are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Also in Acts 16, he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And in the next chapter of the passage we read this morning, John says, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The only way we can be saved is through faith in Jesus, being confident and trusting in the mercies of God, knowing that God 
has and will forgive our sins. That we are accepted in his favor. That he has released us from our slavery to sin. Not by our works, but solely by the work of Christ on the cross. Friends, we must have faith. And if we hold this faith tightly in our hearts, we can be sure, we can have no doubt that we will obtain salvation at God's hands according to his own promises. Jesus came into the world that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Now this faith that we should have in Jesus shouldn't be some wavering or inconstant faith. It was this kind of faith that almost drowned Peter as he walked towards Jesus. It's this kind of faith that James says in chapter 1 is like waves of the sea. That person should not expect anything from God, James says. But instead, it should be strong, steadfast, right to the very end. Trusting always in the work of Jesus, that once and for all, offering himself on the cross, has taken away our sins and restored us again in God's sight, God's favor, so fully and so perfectly that no other sacrifice will ever need to be made again in the whole of creation. Now let this faith, friends, be working in our hearts the salvation of our souls, hating sin and loving God. For just like all those who looked on the serpent, the brass serpent in Numbers 21, were healed of their physical wounds and diseases, all those who look on Christ on the cross with true and lively faith will be healed the diseases of their souls. Let us trust that it's only by the blood of Jesus on the cross that can save us and clean us from our sins. So that at the end of the world, when Jesus returns in glory to judge, to be our judge, he would receive us into his kingdom and we would take our place in that crowd of his chosen people, sharing in that everlasting life bought by his precious blood shed through his bloody wounds on this day. And so did Jesus, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, be all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.